This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of Railroad Model Craftsman magazine. Sharpen your modeling skills with in-depth features and how-tos each month with Railroad Model Craftsman from Karsten's Publications. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. As we approach our first year on the air, we hope you've been enjoying the ride and telling your modeling buddies all about us. Right, Jim. We're the short podcast that's long on ideas and inspiration, the little show that's big on quality guests. And we've got two more for you this time around. Later in the show, Jim will chat with John Johnston, one of the founders of CARM, the Canadian Association of Railway Modelers. But first, another Canadian guest, one whose machining talents and fertile mind have revolutionized model track laying the world over. His name is Tim Warris, and Trevor is with him now. I hand lay my track. There's a sentence that can only be said with pride, and for decades, hand laid track was a rite of passage for model railway enthusiasts. The act of spiking rails to ties, of cutting and fettling the various components for a switch, of building track to suit the situation rather than altering the situation to suit the track. These and more were skills unique to the true craftsman in our hobby. Well, no more, and we can thank my guest today for that. Tim Warris is the owner of Fast Tracks, a company that has made it possible for almost anybody to enjoy the zen-like qualities of building hand-laid track and the pride that goes with it. Even the pros are taking advantage of Tim's tools and materials to build better track faster. Tim, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Well, I'm glad to be here, Trevor, and I must commend you on working the word fettle into that introduction. <laughs> well, thank you. It's one of my favorite words, yeah. that and fretting. Now, oh, yes. before we talk about Fast Tracks itself, I think it's fair to say that you've built some of the most complex model track that any hobbyist has ever undertaken. Uh, what's your own fascination with railway track? You know, that's that's a good question. I, I approach it sort of like you just mentioned, you know, with a Zen-like approach. And I see it almost as an art form. Something about parallel lines that uh, that fascinates me, and the geometry, flowing geometry, and it's it's been a a lifelong passion. And in fact, I can remember in kindergarten for show and tell, holding up two O scale Lionel turnouts, and uh, I, I called them frizzes back then because they just looked like frizzy lines. So the uh, the passion for track work started early so i guess that would put me in the, into like a nerd category it certainly will but you know there you're <laughs> you have good company in that category there are a lot of us who qualify <laughs> now how did that interest in track then turn into fast tracks the business accidentally really the uh, the bronx terminal layout i've i've been building has some of the most complex track I've ever seen anywhere. And I th- I'm pretty sure that it's probably the most complex in the world for a small terminal. And uh, when I first saw the track plan for that, I thought, oh, geez, I'd love to build this. And, you know, I knew I couldn't build that level of track with the skills that I have. So I, I tried to figure out a way that uh, that I could build fixturing to do it. And, uh, you know, I did some, some tinkering. Unfortunately, uh, being a tool and die maker, I had access to some computer CNC equipment and did some tests and, and made up some crude wooden fixtures and actually built a few pieces of track work for the Bronx Terminal. Ultimately, I ended up not building the Bronx Terminal at that time. I decided I wanted to build a, you know, a more traditional double-deck layout. So when I started building that layout, I returned to the idea of using a fixture to build the turnouts and uh, made up some wooden ones and, and built the layout using them. You know, a few people spotted them when we would do the double headers layout tour every year. Clark Cooney was the first one, I think. Uh, he said, hey, I, I got to buy one of these things. So I said, well, maybe I can, I can make you one. So I, I made him one. And, you know, a few other people saw them. 
and uh, you know it kind of grew from there into into a business you know it was never my intention to you know let's let's start a business that makes track work it was just you know I had these fixtures that I made and there was a lot of demand for them so with the help of my brother uh, who had a really strong background in e-commerce and business as well he built and launched a website and Fast Tracks was born. So it really was, uh, you kind of backed into becoming a uh, hobby-based business then. Uh, it's now your full-time job. Was there a point where you just said, wow, I'm going to be doing model train stuff for a living? Or how did that work? Yeah, that's, that's kind of, it, it kind of evolved slowly. You know, when my brother built the website, it was about six or eight weeks before we had a sale. Uh, and when we did, I would run into work at night after hours and, and make the fixture and then come home and box it up and ship it off. And, uh, you know, after the first sale, you know, the second sale, the third sale, and next thing you know, we were getting busy. So it was getting really hard to do this after hours and on weekends. So I, I bought a machine, um, basically maxed out my credit card and bought a computerized machine to make them at home. And after six months of burning the candle at both ends, I went to a part-time position at work where I could work there for two or three days a week. And then I could work at home for five days or six or seven days a week, it seemed. <laughs> and uh, I did that for six months or so. And then eventually it became obvious that this I could sustain myself doing this. So I, I quit my job. Can you describe the first products that you offered? What were they and why did you start with those? The very first fixtures we offered, they looked a lot different than what we sell now. They didn't have the tie pockets in them. What they were was an aluminum jig with just the grooves of the rail. You would set the rail into all the spots and you would solder pieces of rail across the head of the rail to get a turnout of it. Similar to uh, what BK Industries produces or BK Enterprises, they make uh, turnouts in that fashion. And I made a fixture that would do that. And we sold maybe... 10 or 20 of those fixtures. And then I was able to get a piece of software, the piece of software I need to uh, add in tie pockets to program a machine to cut the tie pockets manually, the way that I had been doing it, um, would be impossible. But with a piece of software that I acquired, it allowed me to uh, have the computer do the programming for me so I could add in the tie pockets. And then we switched over to the second generation of fixtures with the tie pockets. So the, the very first fixtures, they looked a lot different. And there's a few of them out there somewhere. We've sold them, but you know, I've never really heard any feedback from people who had them. So I, I don't know whatever became of them. We'll have to check eBay and see if someone's yeah. selling them. Vintage, how it all began. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the very first fixtures were made out of wood. And I got them around here somewhere in a box, all burned up from soldering on them. But uh, yeah, they're just made out hardwood they'll have to go in a frame or something yeah in, in the national archive or something that's it now from there how how's the fast tracks product line grown from that oh quite a bit there was a lot of companion products added for the fixturing process of building turnouts. So we added the laser-cut ties that we call quick sticks. They were probably one of the first major introductions to the line when we bought a laser cutter We've reworked the way our frog, the original frog point grinding jig was a very different looking tool than the point form tool that we sell now. So that was a, a, a major rework. Stockade tools were, were introduced to remove the base of the rail and uh, an entire line of tools uh, that we call twist ties. That's uh, a very different approach from fixture built track work. It's actually uh, a fret of wooden ties that are joined together and flexible. You can glue these ties down as a single piece or curve them into whatever shape you need and build the turnout on top of it. It's a lot more like the traditional approach to hand laid track, but it allows you to get the geometry right, which can be quite frustrating. So there was the entire twist tie line that, that we added. 
Bullfrogs were another one a couple years back. Their laser cut kit to build a, a small manual switch machine. And we introduced those at six bucks and we still sell them for six dollars a piece. So that's a very low cost way to operate a turnout. Sweepsticks was another one recently that we uh, introduced for forming flex track or for using, uh, you, you can use them for designing your layout as well. They're laser cut lengths of curved jigs or, or gauges that go between the rails and allow you to form form track. So, um, But for the most part, when we introduce products, whether our own or somebody else's to our website or to our, to our line of tools, we try and focus on track work, anything with that part of the layout. And certainly you're offering more than a product line. Anyone who knows your systems knows that you are offering a whole track building system, right? From uh, people can buy rail ties, spikes, the fixtures, everything else. You've made a number of changes to the system over the years. You've mentioned some of them, like improving the, the fixtures and things like that. Have these changes been driven by your customers or is it your own quest for building better track work or, or a mix of both? Or how did those things come about? Both. There's been a lot of improvements made to the tools from feedback from customers. And that still, I think, is our number one driver for innovation here is, is what people request. You know, They say, you know, I want something that will do this. And, well, if we think it's got merit, we'll, we'll develop it and bring it to market. We've done that several times. Um, plus, also, you know, just, uh, just a quest for, for myself to build better track. Like the, uh, the Bullfrog switch machine, for example, evolved from a device I needed to offset a tortoise switch machine on my central New Jersey layout. All the turnouts are driven with tortoise switch machines. And because it's such congested track work, there's some places where you have six or eight sets of points within a square foot. So it wasn't possible to get all my switch machines under the turnouts. So I needed to offset them a foot or two. So I made a, a little lever that I could fasten directly under the turnout that would be very small, and then I could mount the tortoise switch machine elsewhere and just drive it with a, with a wire. When that was done, you know, we got, we got looking at it and thought, you know, if we put a micro switch on this and, uh, and a spring mechanism, we could have a, a really simple mechanical switch machine. And so it, it kind of evolved from that. So, uh, you know, a lot of the things, you know, like to say, uh, necessity is a mother of invention. So Sure. You've been doing this for about eight years now, and you've made many improvements to how people handle a track, but is there anything else that you still really want to improve on? I'd like to eliminate some of the compromises that we have to make, especially with track work. You can have you know, a scale-looking turnout if you want to spend enough time to build it. You can have a very simple, crude-looking turnout quickly. You can have a very robust turnout kind of somewhere in the middle. So what I'd like, you know, what I'm focusing on now is working on ways to improve the appearance of the track work that you can build and applying different approaches so you can get closer to a more scale-looking turnout. And that's uh, that's a product line that I'm hoping to introduce in the future, something somewhere in the middle ground, something that looks a little bit better, but not something that's going to take you, you know, three evenings to build one turnout. Your tools really do make a difference, and I use them myself, but you must have quite a selling job to do sometimes when you're at a train show or a convention. What are some of the biggest issues that make people shy away from handling track, and how do you address those? Well, speaking for our product line, I'd say the number one thing people sometimes get hung up on is, is whether they can solder. They're like, you know, I've never really soldered before, and it's really not as hard as it looks. It's quite simple, and we've shown hundreds and hundreds of people how to solder at clinics and from watching the videos and that. And, you know, the, what I tell people is that anybody can do it. Anybody can build a turnout using these tools. And, you know, we've, uh, since day one, we've always fully warranted them. So if somebody can't get the results they're looking for, we'll give them their money back. And we've only ever given maybe two or three people their money back. 
I, I remember the first guy that returned a bunch of stuff and none of it had ever even been used, so he didn't even try it. But for the most part, the feedback we get is all very, very positive and people are quite excited by the results they get. It goes back to that uh, sense of pride of doing it yourself because yeah. it's it, something. You know, yeah. it, it, it boils down to, you know, the, the best line I thought I, I'd heard uh, was from Clark and he says, you know, you don't have to build them, you get to build them. And I think that can be applied to almost anything in our hobby. Uh, you just change your mindset that I don't have to build this thing. I get to build this thing. That's a really great way of looking at it. And I think that's probably a good place to wrap up on this, Tim. Thanks for yeah. joining us on the Model Railway Show. It's been a pleasure. Great. Glad to be here. Fast Tracks owner Tim Warris has been helping the world build better railroads since 2003. Thanks, guys. You know, Trevor, I got to say, Tim is a truly amazing guy. Well, first of all, we should mention he's virtually a neighbor to us. He's within an hour's drive away, but he never seems to run out of ideas. I can't imagine how my track work would function without his contribution to the hobby. I mean, I've hand-laid switches, but his fixtures just make them bulletproof, you know? They certainly do. I use them myself. He's found the holy grail of the hobby business, hasn't he? He's found that niche, and there's quite nothing else out there like it. And he knows the value of advertising. You know, I picked up an Australian narrow gauge magazine and there on the inside front cover is a fast tracks advertisement i'm convinced that when archaeologists unearth our model railways thousands of years from now they're going to classify them into two epochs there's going to be before fast tracks and after fast tracks how about the bronx terminal layout if anybody gets a chance to see this thing at a show, that has the most complex track work I've ever seen. Every one of those crazy switches of his has had a custom-built fixture so he could make those switches specifically for that layout. It really is a testament to what you can do with the system, and he does do custom work as well. So if you want to do the Bronx Terminal yourself, you probably need to get in touch with him, and he'll do up a set of jigs for you as well. Her fixtures, I should say. He doesn't like calling them jigs. It's a great exhibit of his talent. And we have exhibits of our own, such as our Flickr gallery, which you can find a link to on our own website, themodelrailwayshow.com. And you can find us on Facebook. We should mention that as well, as long as we're self-promoting, right? Yes. And of course, we also have links to all of the interviews that we talk about. We have an episode guide for each show. So if you want to look up Tim's Fast Tracks business or look up our next guest, that is the place to do it. Next up is a man whose contribution to the hobby of model railroading is that of a builder, not only in the hobby, but of the hobby. John Johnston is one of the co-founders of the Canadian Association of Railway Modelers, a group formed to pull Canadian modelers together. But as we're about to hear, it's been a tough pull for CARM. Canada has its own organization for linking model railroaders across the country and those in other countries who have Canadian modeling interests. It's called the Canadian Association of Railway Modelers, or CARM for short. It's been in existence since 2003 when it was formed as a bottom-up organization. That is, its executive would seek direction for the organization from the rank-and-file modelers in chapters across the country. The idea of minimizing politics is a worthy concept, but it's been an uphill battle attracting members and chapters outside of the group's core area in the province of Ontario. CARM isn't giving up. This year, it went to its members seeking opinions on how it can find resonance and relevance in an age where almost every one and information on virtually everything in the hobby can be found with a few key clicks. CARM wants to serve and is looking for the magic formula that will give its members value added for their annual dues. John Johnson of Hamilton, Ontario, is the CARM director and editor of the CARM newsletter, The Canadian, and he's with us now. John, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thank you. First of all, as always, we direct our listeners to the link on our website to learn more about CARM. John, what brought about the formation of CARM and what is its mission? Well, CARM was formed in October 2003, primarily as a result of two factors. 
All of the founding members were part of the organizing committee for the Annemarie National Convention, uh, which was held in Toronto in 2003. And without going into great detail, suffice to say that there was a high level of frustration amongst the committee members after the SARS crisis hit, and the Annemarie was less than supportive of our efforts to keep the convention on track, up to and including withdrawing the national train show. That frustration, however, wasn't sufficient in and of itself to lead us in the direction that we took. What was actually more significant was that as we went looking for layouts and clinicians, we discovered that the majority of them were not NMRA members. As an example, I was the outside chair responsible for tours, and I had lined up 120 layouts. And of those 120, over 100 of them were not NMRA members. One of my tasks was to try to convince them to become NMRA members, primarily so they would be covered by insurance for people visiting their homes. It was one of the prerequisites that the NMRA had, had laid on us, and I found great difficulty in convincing them to do that. And as a result, the convention committee ended up buying thousands of dollars worth of NMRA memberships just to cover that insurance requirement. But out of those discussions, it became clear that most of them would give consideration to a Canadian organization if one were to be formed. And so after the convention was over, a group of us sat down and discussed that whole thing in detail and made the decision that we would attempt to form a Canadian organization. Our goal that year for the first year was to have 100 members. Uh, by the end of that first year, we actually had around 400 members. And so we felt there was a clear demonstrated need for a Canadian organization, and we've continued ever since. There was significant early interest shown. Membership has uh, shrunk, I believe, by about 20%. What's happening there? Well, that's a good question. That's really been the crux of the re-examination that CARM has been going through over the last, I'd say, pretty close to a year. There really isn't any empirical data, and there's no hard and fast answers to the outcome. But what I can do is make some personal observations and then draw a conclusion at the end of it. The observations, firstly, the average age of model railroaders is getting increasingly older. It's not to say there aren't young people in the hobby, but overall the demographic is getting older. Jason Schron recently indicated that in a survey of customers, he'd concluded that the average age of model railroaders was between 60 and 80. And I think that's probably a fair assessment. When you get into that age demographic, issues of health all come into play and can potentially lead to the downsizing of your base. The second thing has been the economy, which has suffered recently and belonging to hobby organizations is a disposable income item, so that undoubtedly has had some effect. Thirdly, the internet, which offers free access to information, to networking, and it's my sense that younger people have gone more in that direction, and so they're not joining hobby organizations. And the fourth observation I would make is that volunteerism as a whole, particularly in, in the hobby side, is down. And what that does is it affects the delivery model that organizations such as ours and uh, other hobby organizations rely on to deliver services. Overall, numbers are down, not necessarily in the hobby, but in, in terms of involvement in the organized side of the hobby. I don't know that we've found the answer. I don't know that the trend can be reversed. I think we're going to attempt to tackle some things, and we will see where it leads us. People outside of Canada might not be aware of the regional rivalries that seem to exist here. How much stronger could you be if you could sell the CARM concept to modelers in Quebec or the Prairies or the Maritime provinces? Well, the issue with those three areas, they all have somewhat unique problems. We have members in all three areas. In the Maritimes, there is a very strong regional organization, the Maritime Federation of Model Railroaders. 
I have no personal knowledge of them, but from what I've seen and heard, they do an excellent job. And we don't see ourselves to be in competition with them. As I say, we have attracted a few members, but I would say overall the hobbyists are being served by that regional organization, and that's great. In Quebec, the issue is clearly one of language, and we attempted to tackle that very early in CARM's existence by translating everything that we created into the French language. That proved to be exceedingly cumbersome and very difficult for a volunteer organization. We have no internal skills in translation, and we had been relying on some people outside. That fell through, and again, we just had difficulty breaking into the Mm -hmm. Quebec area. In the prairies, we have a strong chapter in Saskatchewan. They're, in fact, the host of next year's national convention in 2012, which will be in Regina. We have a fair number of members in the Winnipeg area. We have a very large contingent in BC, and the one area where we thought we would make some progress but haven't really had a breakthrough, and I think there what we need as a volunteer is in the Calgary-Edmonton corridor in Alberta. Okay, so you might be in a better footing than I had perceived. What about a potential role for CARM as an umbrella organization for SIG groups or model railroad clubs, historical organizations, and the like? I don't know that I see our role as being an umbrella group. Each of these groups have somewhat strong and independent Mm -hmm. views. Okay, what what about cooperation with them then? Yes, I think there is tremendous opportunity for all of us to work cooperatively together. One of the problems that we experience in Canada, and CARM certainly has been experiencing this problem, this country is 3,500 or 4,000 miles wide with great distances between its major population centers. And so face-to-face communication, moving documents, moving goods across the country for small volunteer organizations without a, a large financial base is a real challenge. Getting together, hosting a convention, the cost of somebody in BC, for example, going to Ottawa or somebody in Hamilton going to Vancouver mitigates against national conventions for organizations such as ours. Okay. CNSIG, CPSIG, CRHA, they all experience the same difficulty. We have had some good success in the past with joint efforts around conventions. I know in our case, we accept membership in any of those organizations for attendance at our conventions Mm -hmm. and and conferences. To Cope Town Show, we give free space to any of those organizations in an effort to promote them and promote membership within them. So I think there are tremendous opportunities for us to work cooperatively in all of those areas. I don't think it's a situation where one is an umbrella overall. CRHA, by the way, folks, uh, for those outside of Canada, Canadian Railway Historical Association, correct? Yes. Okay, this brings us to a special ballot that was issued to your members earlier this year. And without going through all the options, which, which ones were considered most viable? And what's the determined course of action at your May annual meeting? Well, the ballot process was, on the one hand, enlightening. And then the end result turned out to be somewhat confusing after our annual general meeting. Out of the ballot process, there clearly was a strong indication that the membership felt that we needed to change, we needed to adapt. And the push seemed to be to move more towards an internet-based organization. Because of reduced costs for things like a printed and mailed Canadian, we could reduce membership fees and see if that had any impact on the membership. That all happened several months prior to the annual general meeting. By the time of the annual general meeting, it appeared that people had given that a little bit of a second thought. And what came out of the annual general meeting was more of a hybrid model. 
the people at the annual general meeting clearly wanted to retain a printed Canadian. And that's actually quite consistent with some material I've been reading lately in a lot of the web forums where when it comes to publications, people prefer something hard copy in their hands as opposed to on the Internet, with the exception of younger people who right. are used to reading that kind of on the Internet. But there was also this push to improve the website. We talked about a Canadian Railway photo database, and we are moving forward with that. We have purchased hardware in order to facilitate that happening. I think David King is looking at securing some volunteers with specific skills, and hopefully within a year we'll be able to put that up. And we think that's something that will be a contribution to the hobby to the retention of historical information about Canadian railways and will be an added value to our members. So we're moving forward in some of those types of areas. Right. Well, John, we've got our fingers crossed for you. Very quickly, about 25 words or less, why should the holdouts join your organization? Let me put it this way. CARM should only survive if it continues to meet the needs of its members. We have to be responsive to the needs of our members. I would say in that regard, where we have chapters, we found our membership to be exceedingly strong in terms of retention, people renewing memberships. That strengthens one of my beliefs that model railroading is a very local hobby. You tend to network with people that live within about an hour of your house. Those are the people that you learn from. Those are the people you share with. Those are the people that you socialize with. And so if we can grow chapters, we will grow as an organization. If you want to share with others, if you want to learn from others, then I think CARM is is an organization that should hold some, some merit for you. All right. Well, it sounds like regardless of what model you choose, selling the need for local chapters is really the key to your survival. So we wish you good luck with that, John. I thank you. Yes, I think you are, you are correct. That is the key component. Okay. John Johnson of the Canadian Association of Railway Modelers, thanks for being here today. Thank you. You know, Jim, I too wish Carmwell. Sometimes the seed of a good idea has trouble finding fertile ground. Well, hey, we're here to provide the fertilizer. We can supply it by the shovel load. Or by the gondola. It must be our past broadcasting experience. As Jim and I make ready to take our exit, we want to remind you that the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net. Subscribe, and you'll never miss an episode. And speaking of episodes, our next is a special one. Trevor and I are going to mark the show's first anniversary. Talk about a fast-moving year. It's like we've had a fast clock running on it. Next time around, we'll kick off year number two with two forward-looking guests who live in the ether. Jim will chat with Joe Fugate of Model Railroad Hobbyist magazine about the present and future of e-zines. And my guest will be Tom Barbelay, who produces and hosts Model Rail Radio, another podcast about this great hobby of ours. Joe and Tom demonstrate there's plenty of stuff online to engage the inquisitive hobbyist. And if you're inquisitive about who helps us get this show on the web twice per month, I'm about to satisfy that curiosity. As always, a special thanks going out to our special helpers. Dave Woodhead for the original theme music, Otto Vondrak for the great web design, and Chris Abbott, whose technical direction prevents any virtual boiler explosions. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. Model Railway Show.